Morning, everybody. Enjoy watching all the little kids the Lord has blessed us with here. Uh, for our guests, my name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of preaching this morning. We are in the book of Acts, and so if you could go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts, turn to chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 12. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, book of Acts is the first book after the first four Gospels in the New Testament. The chapter is the big black letter. The verses are the small letters that follow underneath. Amazing. Last Sunday, Pastor Peter did an excellent job showing us how God prepares his church for witness. This week we'll be looking at what the result of that is when God launches his church on mission. So that's what we're looking at in these, in these verses here. So let's go ahead and read this together and get to work. I'll read these words. We'll pray and jump in. Verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis... They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues, to, in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. It's John Mark. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus be like the governor, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell Upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is. This is not some obligatory prayer we pray before we hear from you in your word, Lord. Lord, we come as your children needing to hear from you, Lord. I come needing for you to speak, Lord. I'm not depending on my words. I want your word to be preached to your people, Father. So I pray by your Holy Spirit, 
Lord, you would send your word now on the mission you intend. And I pray that it would affect our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray your will for our lives through this text would be accomplished today as we hear from your word, as we see who you are, as we marvel at your grace unfolded to us, delivered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday of July, August is just around the corner. If you're a college football fan, it's getting to be that time of the year, isn't it? Predictions are coming out. Preseason rankings are coming out. Conversations are being had. Banter is taking place. Fans are discussing whose team will win what game. It all begins to happen around this time of the year. And while college football fans may not all agree on who the best team is, college football fans do agree, or they should if they're college football fans, on who the best conference is. The best conference is the, we all agree, don't we? The SEC right now dominates college football. Over the past 15 years, that's been the case. Why do they do this? Well, we see they, that happens. Sign, Sign the best coaches, recruit the best players. They have the best venues to play at. They send the most players to the NFL. They dominate. Right now, they are unstoppable as far as conference college football goes. But we know that this probably won't always be the case. Things change. Time marches on. Like all great nations, great conferences too, rise and fall. All good things come to what? As far as creation goes, there are termination dates. There's altercations. But as we read Acts, one thing we see is that this is not true about God. God... God does not stop. God is all-powerful and does what he wants. He's eternal. He's always been, and he'll never have an end. And what God wants to do, he does. God's mission, what he's doing in this world, through our lives, through his church, it's unstoppable. God's mission is unstoppable. You know why? Because it's God's mission. And he is an unstoppable God. That's that's what we see in Acts over and over. It's the prevailing power of God. So as we begin this new phase, we're, we're beginning a new phase in Acts. The gospel is now going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria 
And now it's getting ready to be launched into the end of the earth. It's about to march across all of Europe. And what God wants us to see here, the pattern we'll see throughout the rest of the book, is that this mission of God is unstoppable. That's actually the main point today. The mission of God is unstoppable because it's the mission of God. In other words, it it cannot fail. It's logically impossible. It's a non-viable option for God's mission not to prevail. There's no stopping it. And in these verses, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see three things that God does that make his mission unstoppable. In verses 4 through 12, we're going to see three things God does that make his mission unstoppable. We're going to see that God sends, God summons, and God saves. Before we do that, before we look at these three things, we don't normally do this on a Sunday morning, but I think the text, the nature of the text, encourages this, and, and I, I believe the Lord would want me to do this. And so I, if you're here, I believe there's some people here, before we start talking about God's mission being unstoppable, And what he does, you might be wondering, well, Jason, how do you even know that God exists? That he even has a mission? I know we're in the Bible Belt, but our nation is becoming increasingly more and more secular. And we can't just always assume that folks believe in the existence of God. And so before we jump in, um, I just want to say thank you for being here. I think that's a great question to ask. I'm not an expert in this field, but I do have a couple thoughts that have helped me. Three thoughts in particular I'd love to just share with you real quick. And since I don't have the entire time to talk about this, uh, I would love to grab lunch afterwards if you would be interested in talking more about this. But just three thoughts that help me uh, know of God's existence is one, um, I believe in an absolute standard of truth, the Bible. And so simply, I, I believe God exists because the Bible tells me so. Now, you may say, well, that, that's it's kind of a s- simplistic argument there. But the reality is, is that all of us believe in absolute truth. Even if you believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth, you're absolutely saying that. You're saying it's absolutely true that there's no absolute truth. And that's a self-defeating argument. There's, there's absolute truth. There's, there's this truth that we base our lives out of that helps us understand the world around us and informs us of what life is and who we are and who God is. And the prevailing postmodern thought of the day is, it's great, Jason, uh, what you say is true 
is true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. So I think my response to that would be, what helps me answer that is saying, you know, what if, what if my truth says that your truth is not true? What if my truth says yours is a lie? Is what's true for me still true? There's only one truth. And I believe, I believe it comes from here. And I believe if you sincerely open this and read it to understand and to seek God, I believe he will reveal himself to you. And so I believe in God's existence because this tells me so. And this appears to me to be the absolute truth that we're all looking for. And secondly, I think another thought there would be an overwhelming body of evidence for God's existence. I think there's more evidence for God's existence than there is evidence for actions and beliefs we have and operate out of every day. I look at creation. Came from something, right? I mean, something cannot come from nothing. Nothing cannot come from nothing. There's a cause. I believe there's a cause. I look at the, at the beauty and the wonder of creation, the complexity of creation. How fine-tuned it is. How tweaked this little planet is. It's created just perfect for human life to exist and flourish. Recently read a, a research uh, physicist from UCLA doctor, he said that if the gravitational force in our universe was altered, zero point, I'm not going to say it all out, just 37 zeros, so zero, 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 zero point 37 zeros and 1%, if it was altered that tiny much of a fraction, you know what would happen? The sun would not rise. And life would cease to exist. Then I look at the Bible and it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. It says, you want to know if God exists? You want to know what God is like? Look at creation. Look at all the things he made. I look at human life. God, God says in the Bible that we as humans are fearfully and wonderfully made that he, he knit us together in his mother's womb. Have you ever taken a look at the human body? 300 trillion cells flowing through it. I can't go into all detail there, but there's, it just works in a wonderful, awesome way. God made it that way. Probably most importantly, I look at the person of Jesus Christ. Sure, God's revealed himself in creation, but God's revealed himself in a man as well. And if, if you've never considered who Jesus is, like if you've never answered that question for yourself, please do. Please answer that question for yourself. If anybody is coming and doing the things that he did and claiming to be God, you need to know if that's true or not. And I'm assuming that the evidence you're considering is going beyond 
the History Channel and Dan Brown's books. I don't mean to take a shot at those. I'm just saying, please, please consider more careful scholarship. Consider eyewitness accounts. People who saw Jesus die, who lived their life with him, saw him die, saw him buried. Then three days later, hugged him and fell at his feet and looked at the scars on his hands from the nails as he has risen from the grave. Eyewitness accounts. Talk to millions of Christian men and women who've experienced Jesus as their personal savior. Which is the third thought I would have. I think personal experience matters. You're here right now. You're at Lakeview Christian Center. You're sitting in a chair in the auditorium. You're listening to this guy named Jason give a message. Let's say you leave here after church. You go and grab some lunch with your friends. And they ask you at lunch, what'd you do this morning? What'd you say? Well, I went to church. Heard a message, sang some songs. Hopefully you've met some friendly people. That's what you did. What if they said, you know what? I don't believe you. Like, yeah, I mean, that's what I did. Right? Your, your personal experience would matter at that point. And I don't think I could ever be convinced otherwise from my own personal experience. I mean, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm not far from New Orleans. I would come to New Orleans early high school, college years for one reason. Party, sometimes for soccer, but mostly I would come for party. Now I'm a pastor here. What happened? I encountered the real living God. And there are hundreds of people here who've done the same. And their experience, their testimony matters. I think those are three good evidences for God's existence. And so it's my prayer that like Sergius Paulus, that we see in our text, a man who is searching and seeking, that like him, you too this morning would come to a firm belief in Christianity and in who God is and in who Jesus is. That's, that's my prayer. So let's, let's look back at our text, back to the premise of the text. God's mission is unstoppable because it's God's mission. It's been unstoppable in my life and your life as well. This is the result of the Spirit's preparation and the Spirit's witness that Pastor Peter spoke about last Sunday. The result of God the Spirit sending his church on his mission is that his mission cannot, stop from, uh, cannot be stopped from accomplishing all he intends it to do. And here in Acts 13, 4 through 12, here's three things he does that makes his mission unstoppable. Number one, God 
sins. God sends Saul and Barnabas for being sent out by who? God, the Holy Spirit. From the beginning, from the beginning of the Bible, we see Scripture tells us that God's heart has been to have a people for his own possession taken from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that they would love and worship him. That's what God's about. That's his heart. This is his mission. It it originated with God, and he, he is the sending agent of this mission. God sends his people on his mission. It's, it's through his people that he moves his mission along. He is the divine missional director. And we, his people, are under his divine missional direction. And his divine missional direction is to wisely and sovereignly send his people mission. This is what he does. It's, it's why he plants and establishes local churches. That's what we're going to see happening in Acts. That's why he does that. It's, it's not just for people to come in, but it's also for people to be sent out of and into the world. As we see in Acts, God, the Holy Spirit, indwells every Christian Therefore, he indwells this church, and he is an outgoing, witnessing person. That's who the Holy Spirit is. And since he indwells us and this church, the church then should be an outgoing and witnessing church. Like like Antioch, a church where the Spirit is believed and loved and obeyed will not only be a growing inward-oriented church, but it will also be a going outward-oriented church. It's the result of the Spirit's preparation. This is what God does in the churches most like Him. And as a result, we will see throughout Acts that the church in Antioch becomes the epicenter of Christian missions throughout Europe. So by the Holy Spirit, the risen Lord Jesus, we see him setting apart Barnabas and Saul. Sends them on their first missionary journey to to Cyprus. Why does he do that? Because unlike the crown jewels at the Tower of London, the church is not meant to just be visited and marveled at. It exists for God's mission. When Jesus built the church, he built it for his mission. Its, it's blueprint is Acts 1.8. Remember what Acts 1.8 says? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the blueprint of the church. We are God's witnesses. When Jesus builds a church, it's for that purpose. The text tells us it was not originally Antioch's idea to send Barnabas and Saul. 
Antioch didn't just have this strategic church planting meeting, as helpful as those can be. Say, hmm, what seems most practical and pragmatic here? Let's send out our best preacher and teacher. Antioch did not originally have this idea. This idea was God's. God said, set these men apart. God sent them out. It was the Holy Spirit. He is a sending God. He wants wants more and more of his love, grace, and mercy to abound in the hearts of his men and women. He He doesn't keep it to himself. He's not stingy. He's a giving and sending God. He wants more and more people to know Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't keep that in. He gives that away. He sends his people to preach that message. That's his mission, and he sends the church on it. So, before I go any further, this mission that I'm talking about here, this mission is not the same thing as local evangelism. I'm not referring to that when I'm saying mission. This mission, what we see happening here in Acts 13, is this. Maybe it's better termed frontier missions. It's the call to the church to plant more churches and to make more disciples where Christ has not yet been proclaimed. It's to go to the unengaged unreached people groups of the world. That's, that's Acts 13. That's where Paul and Barnabas are going. They're going to Cyprus. Christ has not yet been proclaimed there. It's a call to go where Christ has not been preached. This is Saul and Barnabas' missionary calling. And such calling is still needed today. The International Mission Board Agency estimates there are 3,100 unengaged different people groups in the world today. 3,100 people groups who have not yet heard the gospel, where a church has not yet been planted. Nobody's developed a plan yet how to reach them. And I share that because that's not a lot. That's not a lot. Here's some math from John Piper that helps put this number of 3,100 perspective. There there are 305 million evangelicals in the world. That's 98,000 evangelicals for each of the unreached people groups. There are 4.6 million Christian congregations in the world. That's 1,483 congregations for every unreached people group. There are 44,000... Christian denominations in the world. That's 14 whole denominations for every unengaged people group. 4,900 mission-sending agencies. It's almost two agencies for every lost, unengaged people group. I say this to remind us there's, there's work to be done. Because God is a sending God. And like Antioch, we need to be ready should the Holy Spirit give sending orders to us and tell us to set apart some here at Lakeview for the sake of the gospel amongst the unreached.
Because while we can't mess this mission up, church, we can miss out on it. What a, what a mistake that would be. This is what God is doing. He's sending his people on his unstoppable mission. And while there's nothing we can do to mess it up, we can be so enthralled with other things in life that we disregard or ignore what he is doing. Frontier missions is not for everyone. I will say that it's not for everyone. God calls and sets certain people apart for this task. However, as a church, we should be eager to see God do this amongst us. We need to be praying and fasting and asking God, like Antioch, that he would use us for this mission, that he would raise up and send out men and women from Lakeview for this mission. This doesn't guarantee that he will. God may have other plans for us. But you know what it does do? It communicates that we as a church have a heart like our father's. We want to see the gospel go to the end of the earth. We want to see him save men and women who are walking in darkness. See the light of the gospel shine into their hearts and open their eyes as it has done ours. Saul and Barnabas said no to this. I think if we took steps and just traced back how the gospel got to the United States of America, it would come to this first missionary journey. Started there, went through Europe and Africa, came over here. They were ready. I believe God calls us to be ready. May we be a church like Antioch that's consumed with what he's doing in the world. And not with ourselves and what we are doing. And, and we see here what he's doing. He's sending. So here's the question. Does the prospect of God using this church, your church, to help fulfill his mission on earth excite you? Does that excite you? It sure does seem to be what God is excited about. Right? I like, I like Facebook. Instagram and Twitter, they social media sites. There's things I don't like about them. Um, but I do like being able to just post some pictures on there. Friends and family can update them on pictures of my family and what's going on. I like to, to see how God's at work and his people. And I like to read tweets that stir my affections for God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever wondered what God would be posting If he wanted to have one of these accounts, I'm not, I'm not talking about one of those accounts with like the somewhat feminine picture of Jesus that's posting little fortune cookie, man-centered thoughts. I recently read one the other day. It said, release your faith. God is shifting things in your favor. He's moving the wrong people out and the right people in. What? (laughs) I wonder what James would have thought of that as he was losing his head for his faith. 
Seriously, though, I think if God had an Instagram or Facebook account, he'd be posting pictures like what we see in Acts. I think he'd be especially enthusiastic about Acts 13. He'd probably post the picture of the church in Antioch, huddled together, praying, hugging, saying goodbye to their friends for the sake of the gospel. He'd probably be so excited about it, there'd be two hashtags. Every nation. First missionary journey. This is our God. He'd probably post another picture of the guys on the boat sailing hundreds of miles across the sea to the island of Cyprus. Look what I'm doing. We know God does not have one of those accounts. But he gives it to us here. This is what he's doing. This is what God's up to. You ever wondered what God's up to? He doesn't sleep. And he spends all his waking hours advancing his mission. Until all people hear. Until all are reached. And no matter what happens, his mission will not be stopped. It's going forward with or without us. You know why? Because it's his mission. He's going to get it done. His quote here from Mark Dever in your outline says this, The success of God's mission for taking his message all over the world will not be done without Christian workers, but... In a very important sense, it's not left up to us. In other words, God will accomplish his mission through us, yet he's no way dependent on us. That's true, isn't it? I mean, haven't we seen this in Acts? Right? Think about the heavenly jailbreaks. Peter busted out of prison twice. Did he have anything to do with that? No. An angel came, took the chains off, told him to get dressed. Let him out of prison, pass the guards. Iron gate opened by itself. In Acts 16, Paul's in prison. God sends an earthquake. Paul's out of prison. Nothing's going to stop God from doing what he wants to do with his mission. Think about the teacher Gamaliel's wise words in Acts chapter 5, 33-39. That's in your text there. Won't read the whole thing, but basically when the early days of the church's life, some of the disciples were arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin. That's the, the holy men of God, the, the Jews. And after hearing Peter speak on their behalf, here's what happens. Acts 5, 33, these verses tell us. But look at these last few verses here. Gamaliel is telling his colleagues. He's saying, in the present case, in this case, should they kill these men? He says this, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice 
wisely took his advice. God's mission cannot fail. He will send and send and send and send and send and send like the energizer bunny going and going and going. He doesn't stop. He's sending men and women out into his harvest to bring about salvation. God sins. And if we are consumed with our own, if we're consumed with our own petty pursuits, if we're consumed with our own trivial lives, if we're fiddling away in the fogginess, consumed with what's fun or cool and loving the soul-shriveling things of this world, we can miss it. We can miss it. May that be may that not be the case with us, church. May we be eager. We're God's children. May we be ready and responsive. Not only does God send so that his mission does not fail. Point two, God summons. God summons. Look at look at verses six through seven with me here. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. God summons. God summons Sergius Paulus. It might not read like that at first glance. But God is the one doing the summoning here. Saul and Barnabas did not go to Paphos looking for a man named Sergius Paulus. But Sergius Paulus was the precise target God was sending these men to. God was taking aim at this man. God had this man in mind when he sent Barnabas and Saul. God already knew where Sergius Paulus was. He knew this man, if you read all of scripture, before the foundation of the world. And now it was time for Sergius Paulus to be found and to hear the gospel. So when the proconsul, he heard that the missionaries had arrived in Paphos, what he does, we read that he sought Barnabas and Saul out to hear the word of God from them. The ESV says, Sergius Paulus summoned Barnabas and Saul to learn more about God, to hear the word of God. But what he did not know was that in reality, God was doing the summoning. Remember, whose mission trip is this? This is God's mission trip. This is God's mission. God is is summoning Sergius Paulus. He's the one who sent Barnabas and Paul on this trip. He's the one driving this thing. He's the one leading Saul and Barnabas to Paphos. This is God doing this. God is the one who had long ago, that we'll read in Acts 17, long ago, God determined the times and places where people lived. The Bible says that. It's God who determines the times and the places where people live. 
And long ago, he determined, this man's going to be the governor of this island. I'm going to put him right here. And I'm going to send my missionaries, my men, to that island, to his address, to tell him the gospel. This is not Sergius Paulus summoning God. God is summoning him. Barnabas and Saul did not leave Antioch with the proconsul in mind. But God had him in mind. Long before the church in Antioch ever existed, long before Saul and Barnabas were even born, God knew where this man would live and how he would come to hear the gospel message. And the fact that Sergius Paulus, a Gentile man who lived hundreds of miles away from Antioch, who had his own personal false prophet sorcerer, wanted to hear the word of God, tells us that God is at work in him. Him seeking to hear the word of God does not, does not mean he's intelligent. Luke's using irony here. Luke's not saying only intelligent people can find God. He's saying nobody can. Only God, God finds us. He seeks us out. He hunts us down. And he calls us forth. It's his mission. He's in control. It's not up to us. It's up to him. And so he summons his people He was being called out. God was preparing Sergius Paulus to hear the good news of the gospel. And because Romans 10, 14 says, how, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? God sent Barnabas and Saul to tell him so that he would hear of the God who made him and of the Savior, Jesus Christ. God's summoning of Sergius Paulus was not God searching for someone like you search when you play hide and go seek. Or Spotlight. Anybody played Spotlight? No? Got one hand. Okay. I grew up in Mississippi. Had a grandmother who lived out on a farm in rural Mississippi. Acres of land. Big magnolia trees. And me and my cousins, I can remember playing Spotlight. Once it turned dark for hours in the night. A lot of fun. God's not searching for this man like as if I'm going searching for somebody with my Spotlight. Now this is, this is, this is, imagine, imagine it's, it's the moment when you're found. Lights on you. Come out. That's what's going on here. God's got him. And he's calling him to himself. God had, had chosen him before the foundation of the world. As Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 says, and now it's time that Sergius Paulus know it. Now it's, now it's time when he becomes aware of this reality. This is truly amazing. Here's the, the ruler of all of Cyprus waiting to hear the word of God. Saul and Barnabas are nobodies in the Roman world. Why would the ruler of a country say, I want to hear from you? They're not, they're not somebodies. But he wants to hear from them, and he wants to hear the word of God. God had been working in this man's heart. 
all along. By the way, men like Sergius Paulus and women like this as well exist everywhere around us. There are men who are genuinely seeking God in a way that is empowered and directed by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. You might know some. There's another way of seeking the Bible talks about. It's seeking in the general sense, right, of men being created in God's image. They're continually looking for something better. The Bible Bible has a category for them. But that's not who we're talking about here. We're not talking about men looking for God generally or something better to fill the void in their life. Right, G.K. Chesterton said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is seeking God. No, we're talking about a man that the Holy Spirit is drawing to himself, is calling out. That's the kind of seeking taking place here in the with the proconsul. He's, he's, it's a seeking that is in reality a summons from God, an irresistible divine drawing of Sergius Paulus to God himself. It's a seeking empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit. It's the kind of seeking we saw in Acts 10 with Cornelius as well. It's a work only God can do, and amazingly, by his grace, he does it. And if you're here today, and you're genuinely wanting to know more about God, and you are not a Christian, then it could be that God is summoning you to himself. God, the Holy Spirit, could be at work in you right now, shining the light on you and calling you home, calling you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And no one can stop this summons. It's irresistible. There's some who will try to turn you away from faith in Christ. You got those people out there. Let's try to turn you away. Who will make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. But God's mission is unstoppable. And ultimately he will save whomever he pleases. And we see that in point three. God saves. God's mission is unstoppable. He sins. He summons. He saves. It can't be stopped. He will save. Look at verses 8 through 12 with me. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. God saves regardless of opposition, church. There are some who will try to turn people away from God's saving, but his mission will not be stopped. It's, it's a theme of Acts. We saw in Acts 12, Herod. Herod's opposing God, but God rescues Peter, which pointed to the ultimate rescue Jesus secured for us. 
And here, one chapter later, we see Elymas the magician opposing God. The text says he's seeking to turn away the proconsul from faith. He's seeking to oppose God's mission. In verse 10, it actually becomes even more clear what Elymas is doing. Paul says to him, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Will you not stop turning people away, trying to oppose God, this is strong language Paul employs here, obviously. Regardless of what Elymas thinks of himself, here we see what God, speaking through Paul, thinks of Elymas. He's a son of the devil, an enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. In other words, he's an opponent. He's an opponent of God. So of course, of course he's making crooked straight paths of the Lord. Of course, he's attempting to manipulate the purposes of God. Of course, he's trying to lead the Roman governor away from the straight path. He's trying to turn away, that that language there, turn away, make crooked. It's the same language. It's opposing God. And Paul is saying to him, hey, will you not stop doing that? God... God will save whom he will. Will you not stop trying to oppose him? Will you not stop acting like your father, the devil, the father of lies? Will you not stop turning people away from them coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Will you not stop trying to obstruct men and women from Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life? This fallen world is, in, is under the influence of the power of the devil, where men and women like Elymas abound. It's a fallen world. The presence of sin remains. There are enemy forces. There's a straight path that leads to life. Jesus says few will find it. There's a lot of people making it crooked. But if God, if God's summoning you, he will straighten that path. And no one can stand in his way. Think of some examples of people making crooked paths. It's all around us. There are those who persecute and marginalize committed Christians. There are those who make a mockery of Jesus. Seen anything on TV like that? There are those who undermine this. There are those who tell you to save yourself. Make your own path. Your path is your path. My path is mine. Follow your heart. That's bad advice. It's foreign to the Bible. It's crooked. And it will turn you away from the straight paths of the Lord. Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And you know what he says? He says, no one can come to God but through me. 
That's the straight path that God is leading the proconsul to, regardless of what this magician is trying to do and the mockery that he is trying to make. We see that God demonstrates that he will save by blinding this man. And he causes darkness and mist to fall upon him. And he can't see clearly. He's going around needing to be led by the hand. And so this opens a door for now the gospel to be clearly proclaimed and the straight path to be given to this man. I'm reading a book in the history of New Orleans. It's called The Accidental City. It's by a professor at Tulane. And uh, interestingly enough, in, in the very beginning of the book, he tells the story of how New Orleans came to, to exist. And many of you probably know this story. Everybody familiar with the English turn? No? Yes, okay, here we go. So the English turn. When New Orleans was founded, when this port was founded, the founder, Bainville, did I pronounce that right? Bainville, he founded initially. And he noticed that there was only one path that led into the port. There were other tributaries along the Gulf, the Mississippi sort of created, the Mississippi River created. And it kind of looked like right paths to get into the port, but they just led nowhere. Ships ended up bottoming out. There was only one path. And Beanville found that path first. And the story of the English turn is, is that while he was sitting there at the entrance of that path, a British fleet, some ships came sailing, wanting to enter. And at the age of 19, he lied to them and told them that was not the right path. And he turned them away. And that's what, that's what this guy's doing here for the proconsul. He's seeking to turn him away. But unlike Beanville, Elemis will not be successful. Instead, he's struck blind. His physical blindness, church, is only a reminder of the spiritual blindness we all have before we met Jesus. That's what Luke's showing us. All of us were once wandering around in the cloud of darkness and midst. Yet, God the Son left his heavenly throne he took on flesh. And he stepped into this dark world. And you know what the Apostle John says about him in his gospel? He says this, in him, in Jesus, was life. And this life was the light of men. The next sentence, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus 
is the light of the world. He alone is the one who came to seek and save the lost. He alone can lead us out of our darkness and out of the mist of sin's deceit. He alone can open our eyes and give us the sight we need to see the truth. And he alone can lead us to the God who saves. Apart from him, we are lost. Apart from Jesus, everything's dark and foggy and unclear which way we should go. We're not planted as a tree and by a stream of living water, as Vic referred to earlier. Apart from Jesus, this is, this is a dark place. This picture of Elymas, the magician being struck blind, is a picture of God's judgment. It's a picture of God's judgment on those who do not turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the ultimate day when God will strike down his enemies once and for all. And here's the thing, guys. You're either going to be struck down by God, like this man, and sent to darkness and hell for all eternity, or you're going to be trusting in the one who is struck down for you. On the cross, the Savior. God, man, hung on a tree. Why? Not because the Jews put him there. Humanly speaking, okay. Jesus claimed to be God. They didn't like that. Called him a blasphemer. Hang him. No, no. This was God's plan all along. He wants a people for his possession, taken from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And to get those people, he must take on flesh, come into this world, live the perfect life that none of us could live. All of us are like Elemis. Before Christ, we're just blind, dark, who cares about God? But Jesus comes in, shines the light. And he goes to the cross. And on the cross, he bears our sins that deserve to be punished. In our place, as our substitute. You get that? Instead of you, it's God being punished. If you have Jesus, Jesus bore that for you on the cross. He was struck down. So you don't have to be. If you'll have Jesus, 
you will be saved from that. You will not face that judgment. Rather, you will face God as your father welcoming you into his kingdom. Into the kingdom of light. Where there are no crooked paths. And there is no darkness or fogginess. The day is coming. Jesus came as a lamb. The Bible tells us he will come back as a lion. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. And he will bring home his people just as God intended to do. And he will bring us into his kingdom. And and there's not going to be a sun there. There's not going to be a moon there. No lights are needed. You know why? The Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the light. And there, all his people, whom he saved, whom are his possession, will be gathered around the throne of God, celebrating, worshiping, marveling, You know what question I think we're going to be asking the most? Why me? I was blind. I was fumbling around in darkness. What in the world am I doing here? Why would God summon me? Why would God save me? What grace know that grace? Do you know Jesus Christ? That's where we're going. Sunday mornings, this is rehearsal time. We come, we gather as his people to worship Jesus Christ and to celebrate him for what he's done. One day rehearsals will be over. That's going to come to an end. And it's going to be the real thing. And I want to see you there. So right now, while we're here, let's get ready. Let's get ready. We're going to see him. Let's put on the right clothes. Let's get dressed. He's called us on a mission. Let's put on the armor. As our children learned from Ephesians 6.13. Let's learn the language. Let us follow him. Let us hope in him. Let us treasure him. Let us join God in this unstoppable mission. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we need your light and truth. We need you, Lord Jesus, to be our great shepherd who guides us and leads us by the way. We were once blind, but by your mercy 
and grace. You, you sought us out. You left the 99 to come after the one and to bring us home to God. To bring us to whom we belong, to whom we were made to live for. So Lord, we now want to do that. We want to live for you. We want to follow you. We want to join you in this unstoppable mission. This unfailing mission to see your gospel proclaimed in our lives, in this city, in this state, in this country, and throughout the world and to the ends of the earth. You started this and you will finish it. You're, you send, you summon, and you save. It's unstoppable. And we thank you for that, God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Stand and sing. Say
life that you've saved us into. Thank you for saving us out of that life, Lord, and putting us on this mission for your glory. Lord, would we, with our lives this week, proclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Would you be glorified in us, we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys have a great week.